We're going to be in verses 7 and 8 specifically today. But let me read these and then we'll go into the entire message. He opened his mouth and he taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me pray. God, I feel the weight this morning of um, preaching the gospel. I feel the weight of preaching your word. If everything I've just said prior to praying is true, this lies at the center. These are the very first words you said in your sermon. Therefore, this is the central message of Jesus Christ. And as I look, they shall see God. This is the end of all religions. They shall see God. Then the weight that falls upon my shoulders this morning that I preach this text accurately is tremendous. And so, Lord, I don't I don't take that lightly, nor should I ever. And so, Holy Spirit, I know my absolute dependence upon you this morning. I, I don't want to say anything that's not true. I don't want to say anything that's not Holy Spirit given. So please come now and speak through me. I pray for all of us here as we hear from the Holy Spirit that we would be receptive to what you're going to teach us this morning. This is not an exercise in futility. This is not a small moment in our life. God himself this morning and every Sunday when someone opens up the word, God himself meets us and God himself speaks to us, reveals to us Jesus. So these are not small moments. These are significant. And I know it's not because of me. So open our eyes this morning. Help us hear from you. Help us be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. And Lord, I pray above all, if there is any person here in this room that does not know Jesus, has not put their faith in Christ, has not received forgiveness in Christ because of his work on the gospel, if he or she does not know what it means to know life everlasting with Christ, would you regenerate their hearts this morning? Would you awaken them spiritually? Would you help them not just have a physical birth that they experience, but a supernatural spiritual birth this morning, put their faith in Christ and be justified before you forever. That's why this is weighty. 
eternity hangs in the balance for some of us this morning. For all of us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't have tons of time to review everything um, up to this point. I've, I've kind of done that the last two weeks. And so um, I just encourage you to grab the last two weeks off the podcast to hear kind of what's going on. Um, there's two things I want to do by way of introduction before we jump in. Um, and these two things are, I think, going to be really helpful. The first is I want us all, though we've seen this before, to see or be reminded who Jesus is preaching to this morning. And the second thing is I want us to see, which I'm going to do this every week, the, the flow of the Beatitudes, because we can't just grab, jump into the middle and not see that there's a, a definite flow. The first thing is I want us to see who he's preaching to, and we have to look up to 4, chapter 4, 23, and there, this is important this morning. 4.23, and he went throughout all Galilee, this is the northern part of the kingdom, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's key, because this is not law. The rest of the, of the Beatitudes, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is all gospel. It's all good news that Jesus came and died for us um, on the cross and will be resurrected. So this, this message here of the Sermon on the Mount is the gospel of the kingdom. And we know that because of 5.3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And 5.10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are bookmarked with this. And so the whole message is the gospel of the kingdom. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, this is important. Look who he's talking to. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So these are broken people. Look further. So his fame spread through all throughout Syria and they brought... Him, here it is, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond Jordan. Seeing these crowds, seeing the people that came to him, these crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down, which is the normal teaching position of a rabbi, and the disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. So the people that are coming to him are not perfect people by any means. These are not people who have it all together. These are broken people. These are desperate people. Just like me and you. This is not a sermon for people who have it all together. This is a sermon for us. We are broken. And I just want you to see that this morning. You need to feel the weight of the fact that you're not coming here having it all together. None of us are. This sermon is for you and me. If you can just admit that and throw away your pride and, and, and quit pretending you have it all together and come knowing you are just like them, broke it, and broken and desperate, and you need Jesus to come and heal you. Well, you're on the path. So he came, and, and his mercy sat down, seeing a sea of broken people. And he's no longer going to just perform acts of healing. He's going to start performing spiritual healing of their souls. 
which is what they need. Because if he just does acts of physical healing, they're comfortable for 70 years and they still go to hell. They need spiritual healing here. The most important thing. And he goes to them and he says, blessed are the poor. So I want to let you see, um, you cannot choose here which beatitudes you want to be true of you and of your life and kind of leave the rest to the side. The beatitudes come to us as a whole, not a series of options. These things are whole. These things are true of Christians and in and, and two senses, which I've said. These things, as, as Christians, we are all poor in spirit. We mourn. We, we're meek. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're merciful. We can go through the whole list. All these things are now, because of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount... It's true of us. We are able to live out the Sermon on the Mount continually every day. We are able to be poor in spirit. We are able to mourn for our sin. We are able to be meek every single day. It's not, well, I really want that. You are that. Jesus died so that the Sermon on the Mount could be true in your life. There's another sense in which we take this because the Sermon on the Mount is also a description of the entire Christian life. All right, I want want you to see this and we're going to go in. But here it is. Before we come to Christ, the first three are showing us who we are before we come to Christ. There's a moment where Jesus regenerates our heart. In other words, he reaches in and he opens up your mind and your heart and your affections to see that you are utterly spiritually bankrupt. You are poor in spirit. You are not morally capable of fulfilling the laws of God. These first three show us our need. They They show us that we're poor in spirit and that we need the kingdom of heaven. When that happens, we mourn. We mourn because of our sin, because we see our sinfulness in light of a holy God. And when we mourn, God comforts us. And he shows us that we need to be meek, that we need to be gentle. Another way to take this is that we will not put our agenda in front of God's, but God's agenda always is going to go first. And when that happens, we shall inherit the earth. This is not a sense in which it's now. This is in sense we will... In the end, inherit the new heavens and the new earth. These first three drive us into ourselves and realize that we're in absolute need of a Savior. And then from that, we have to look outside of ourselves because we'll never find righteousness. And so we need to hunger. We find ourselves hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And it's shown to us here in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied or filled. So we look outside of ourselves for an alien righteousness, a different righteousness, because it can't be found in ourselves and it's only found in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, we see God as merciful and he shows us mercy and he makes us pure in heart. We are now going to stand before God, pure in heart, justified. We put our faith in him and we are justified. We are declared righteous. We are 100% innocent in the eyes of of God because of Christ's work on the cross. We put our faith in his work, his atoning work on the cross. And when that happens, we shall see him. And when now that we are Christian, we become peacemakers, not peacemakers in just a temporal sense where we want to do that. We want to be the kind of people who work for social justice. But more than that, there are people that aren't Christians that need to have peace with God. They need to have peace with him. They are living a life that is not pleasing to him. They're willingly making choices 
to not live for the glory of Christ. And we want to, they are hostile to God as the Bible describes them. And we want to make peace with them and God because 2 Corinthians 5 says that we're ambassadors and God's making a plea through us to them. Hey, be reconciled to God. So we are peacemakers. And when that happened, we're called sons of God. And surely, when we are peacemakers, because we're no greater than our master, we will be persecuted for this. Because some people will say, your message is foolishness. And we'll be persecuted. And what that persecution looks like depends on where we live and how bold we are. And so that's, that's kind of the message as a whole. But here, we're going to dive into specifically what verse 7 and 8 are telling us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And remember, we are seeing this sermon be preached to broken, desperate people of whom we, which we are. We are desperate for the mercy of God. We are desperate to be pure in heart. So he says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful. Now, I'm just going to kind of pick up in the middle here with number 5 because um, I don't have time to review all of them. But here's the fifth one. Remember, I'm, I'm taking an approach that I'm not saying, so be merciful now. I'm saying that God has been merciful to you, therefore you are merciful. Here's, here's the fifth one. If you have believed in the gospel, if you have believed in the gospel, you are merciful. You are merciful because you have received mercy. Because you have received mercy. God has shown himself merciful to you. So why am I being merciful? Why is it that I need to be? Well, being merciful is the natural... This is Sinclair Ferguson. He says, being merciful is the natural result of receiving Christ and experiencing the grace of God. Being merciful is the natural result of receiving Christ and experiencing the grace of God. So the natural question is, all right, if I am supposed to be merciful, blessed or the favor of God is upon you, happy favor of God is now upon you, you are blessed. If this is true, to whom am I supposed to be merciful to? And there's really two people here. Two people. We are supposed to be merciful to those whom are in need. Those who are poor, the widow, the orphan. We can see that in James 1. Um, and there's a second sense in which who, and to people we're supposed to be merciful to. The first is those who are in need. The, the widow, the orphan, etc. The second person is this. Those whom have sinned against you. These are very different. The first one. All right. This one is easy to agree with. This is very easy. You see someone who's in need. They're a widow. They're an orphan. They're poor. You see an obvious physical need. And God, because he has been merciful to you in Christ and has forgiven you, you are therefore supposed to extend mercy to this person. They need your help physically. They need for you to meet their needs. This is an easy thing to agree with. However, I would say that the majority of the time in all of our lives, including myself, it's very rarely followed through with. We see the needs. We agree that there's a need. 
but very rarely do we actually follow through to the degree which we would agree is what we're supposed to do. Calvin says it this way. He's saying we must not we must patiently bear with our own afflictions. We all have needs. We must patiently bear with our own afflictions, but we must also bear the afflictions of our neighbor. We must be deeply touched by their suffering and moved by love to mourn with them. Helping others amounts to nothing unless we are moved by a love which comes from the heart. Helping others amounts to nothing unless we are moved by a love which comes from the heart. So we show we don't show mercy to others so that God will show mercy to us. That's backwards. We show mercy to others because God has shown mercy to us. So that's the first one. We need to show mercy to people who have obvious physical needs. The second one is a little more tricky. The second one is those whom have sinned against you. This is difficult to agree with, not easy to agree with like the first one. This one's difficult to agree with because if you've been sinned against, you know how difficult it is to extend mercy to this person. And it's even more difficult, I think, to follow through with. But let's remember the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are, we're poor in spirit. We recognize that we're spiritually bankrupt. We have mourned because of our sin. We need to be meek or gentle now. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. Therefore, we are now going to be merciful to others. We realize that we have received mercy. And because of that, because of, we have recognized our utter sinfulness before God, that if someone sins against us, the right Christian response is to extend mercy to them. Now, <laughs> this is extremely difficult. Another way to kind of translate this word mercy, mercy is kindness or forgiveness. So Christian, this is declaring who you are, not who you potentially should be. Christian, you are merciful. There isn't a, an offense that's been done to you that isn't more sinfully higher than the offense that you've done to God and that I've done to God. And he has forgiven. He has shown mercy. So we are to be merciful as well. D.A. Carson commenting on this says, this, this idea of mercy causes us then to start asking some hard questions. He says, this causes the professing disciple of Jesus Christ to ask himself some hard questions. Am I merciful or, this is a difficult word, supercilious, which just means contemptuous or arrogant or disdainful. He says, am I merciful or am I arrogant, basically, to the wretched? Am I merciful or am I arrogant to the wretched? Am I gentle or am I hard-nosed towards the downtrodden? Am I helpful or am I callous towards the backslidden? Am I compassionate or am I impatient to the fallen? If we remember the story in Luke 7, there's a woman who had received forgiveness. She busts into the house. She goes uninvited with her hair and she's crying as hard as she can. She's got perfume. And she falls down at the feet of Jesus. And she's taking her hair and she's producing so much tears that she's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. And she's pouring perfume on. And Jesus kind of makes a statement at the end of that. And he says, 
Those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who have received mercy show mercy. And so as difficult as it is when you've been sinned against, the truth is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Which takes us into this next one. And we're going to spend a little bit more time on verse 8. Um, because this one, most people say, kind of falls at the heart of the entire Beatitudes. This is the central message. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's just a preacher that lived about uh, 80 to 100 years ago in London. He said, this is undoubtedly one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the whole realm of Scripture. This verse, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This beatitude contains the goal, the goal of all religions. It contains the goal of all religions. All religions are going to tell you that in the end you're going to somehow receive absolvement or forgiveness or whatever. But the goal of all religions is to not go into the afterlife being condemned, but go into the afterlife seeing whatever their form of God is or forgiveness or whatever. This verse says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the goal of all religions. Now, we're Christians, so we say and we believe and we hold to, and it is true that Jesus Christ is the only way to receive forgiveness. Jesus Christ is the only true God. So the only God that you can see in the afterlife, the only true God, is Jesus Christ. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, which is Jesus. How? How is this? And we need to rehearse this every single week. What you need from me more than anything, whether you are an unbeliever or a believer, is to hear the gospel. You don't just need advice. You need to go back this next week hanging your hat on the fact that you are completely righteous before God. So what is the gospel? What is the way that we can see God? Christ Jesus has come. I, I was rehearsing this with my, and, and I go over it with my daughters. I've got two older daughters that are five and almost seven. And I was, I was going over the gospel of them this past week, just reminding them of what it means to be totally forgiven and that we have sin. And the amazement still in their young minds is just awesome to see. Like, as you pour out the gospel to them and they see that they are completely, uttering, utterly dependent upon righteousness being given to them, and then you tell them that this can only happen because of Jesus, their minds light up. And the end is amazing where they go to. But the gospel is that we are born completely, completely sinful. And that because of that, we're separated from God and we need forgiveness. And there is no forgiveness found in anywhere but Jesus. We could not live a perfect life. We were supposed to, we were born to live and keep the law perfectly. And God has said that you cannot live. He's given us the law and saying, here's the law, live, live it perfectly, and you can't. The law was given to us to show us our utter need for Christ. And so, instead of condemning us all to hell, which would be just, it would be absolutely just for him to say, 
keep these requirements. And if we don't keep them, say, those were the requirements. It is just for me to give you what you have wanted, which is hell. He instead makes a way for us to be able to be forgiven. He gives us his son who lives a perfect life, goes to the cross and dies the death we should have died, absorbing all of the built up wrath of God the Father. Jesus absorbs all of this wrath towards sin, which was supposed to be for us. Now, if that's just the end of the story, it's not necessarily great news. But three days later, which is why we we celebrate every single Sunday, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Jesus defeated Satan, sin and death and was raised three days later. And so therefore, we have defeated Satan, sin and death. He has done it for us. And we can, if we put our faith in his work on the cross, if we put our faith in the fact that Jesus died for us and all of our righteousness is coming from him because he lived that life and all of our sin was paid for at him, you now walk, if if you put your faith in that, you now walk 100% righteous before God. You need to hear that every day because tonight whenever you speak to your spouse in a way that's not loving, tonight when you lose your temper to your child tomorrow morning or the next morning or the next morning when you don't read your Bible and you feel guilty or you sin in a bigger or smaller way, however you look at the hierarchy of sin, you are automatically, like all of us, going to fall back into the prodigal son mindset, which is, well, I want to go to God. I feel bad about my sin. I want to go to return to the Father, but I got all this pig poop all over me and I can't go to the father unless I clean myself up first before I go to him. All of us fall back into this legalistic pharisaical mindset that I got to clean myself up first before I can return to have right fellowship with the father. And that is not the gospel. You got to know that the gospel is that you have, you are 100% righteous. Yes, Yes, you should feel you should feel bad about your sin. First John one nine. Go to it and remember, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you remind yourself there is, in a sense, continual daily repentance of sin. But that is not salvific. It is not the confession and repentance of a of a saved sinner that saves them. That's already happened. You've already been justified. And so when you sin when you feel the weight of your sin on your shoulders and the guilt of the way you spoke to your spouse or whatever you've done, you remind yourself, you preach the gospel to yourself. I am 100% given it in front of Christ. And so you go just like the filthy prodigal son to the father because he's the one who has cleaned you. And the beautiful story is, it says that while we were still a long way off, The father sprints towards the son. Pretty beautiful. And that's that's the way it is. I mean, you just got to remember the gospel over and over and over. And so here we are. The beatitude contains the goal of all religions, which is we shall one day see God. And in the end, by the way, when you die, the good news is that you will spend eternity in heaven with Christ. Not only are you forgiven in this life and you can live righteously, these things are true of you, but one day you will see God. You are declared pure in heart and you shall see God. All right, so this beatitude here, it finds its roots. And we have to remember Matthew's writing to Jews who know the scriptures completely. And so this beatitude finds its roots in Psalm 24. 
in Psalm 24. I want you to see Psalm 24. It should be up here. Feel free to flip to it if you want. You certainly can't find it in our New Testament Bibles, but um, (laughs) you can find it if you have the, the whole deal. All right, Psalm 24. Here it is on the screen. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? These two questions are, 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 are asking the question, one day in the afterlife, there will be a sense in which we're going to see God. Who's going to ascend? Who's going to be able to go up to that holy hill and see him? Who's going to stand in this holy place? Who's going to be able to see God? And then he tells us in verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Sounds a lot like this verse here. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So it finds its roots in this. Psalm 24. Who shall ascend upon the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So we lift up our soul to Jesus. All right, so biblically, let's take a look here at the heart. We know that we need to have a pure heart in order to see God. We know that we need that. Let's take a look biblically how the Bible describes our heart. This is going to be a fun exercise. It's not going to hurt that bad. It's going to hurt a lot, actually. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 15. I'm just going to read you a verse straight out of the same book that we're in. Matthew 15, 19. Out of the heart come. This is, you know, this is your coffee cup verse. This is going to boost your, 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 your self-esteem um, for the rest of the week. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. I know that blesses your heart. So here's the deal. If that's the case, the heart is impure, it's deceitful, it's wicked, it can't be trusted, it's evil and murderous. (laughs) If that's the case, then I don't have a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Bible's telling me that my heart is not pure. This is not good news at all. What is the... The Bible also talks about the heart as the center of our personality. It says it is our mind and our will and our emotions. And Matthew 12 actually says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Therefore, that's why you see some horrible things coming off your tongue. It's because the description of your heart's here. And then all of a sudden, you have things that you say that aren't helpful or kind. They're sinful. So here's the big question. If the pure in heart see God, what is it that we can do? How can man's heart ever be called pure? God. It's the only way. It is only a work of God. There is no work that you can do to cause your own heart to be called pure or to be pure. It is only a work of God. This Our heart is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is most concerned about. As you read through the book of Matthew, you'll see over and over as Jesus is just lighting up the Pharisees, he's not necessarily talking about their outward actions. He's always driving in deep to the motive of their heart. The heart is what the gospel of Jesus is most concerned about. This is why, as we sang this morning in that first song, Psalms 51, David cries out, Create in me a clean heart or a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David understood that his heart before God would never be what it should be without the work of God coming and causing him to have a pure heart or literally giving him a pure heart. 
So the goal of all Christian religions is to see God. The goal of all of us is to have a pure heart so we can see God. We have to have a pure heart. Purity of heart, D.A. Carson says, is the indispensable prerequisite for fellowship with God. Purity of heart is the indispensable prerequisite for fellowship with God. So how does this work? How does purity of heart work? This is the, <laughs> this is the question of all questions. All right, and we're going to look at this in two, in two senses, okay? Because purity of heart comes as we put our faith in Jesus. Our faith in Christ and his work on the cross, God declares you 100% righteous. So if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. You will be declared purity of heart. That's how it comes. But we want to understand this purity of heart in two senses because easily when we say that, well, I believe in Jesus' work on the cross then, thanks a lot. I'm going to come sit back here in the limo in the back seat and I'm just going to say, drive, driver, got you, Jesus. I'm going to chill back here and just kind of cruise the rest of my life and not really have to do anything. And so the Bible, praise God, does not just leave it like that or else we would all be, and I know myself, I would just put it on cruise control and just live with my own desires for the rest of my life. And so this purity of heart is to be understood in two senses. All right, two senses. Let's, let's see this. I'm going I'm to ho- hopefully let you see this first of all in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 14 says this way. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we can see the sense right there of seeing the Lord, which is that promise in the Beatitude. But notice the first part of the sentence. Strive for peace with everyone. Let's keep that word strive. And you see the the and or the chi in the Greek, which means we can take that word strive, the verb, and connect it to the next two clauses. We're supposed to strive for peace and we're supposed to strive for holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for holiness. And if we don't strive for holiness, we will not see the Lord. So which one is it, Fudd? Are we declared righteous? Are we declared holy? Or am I supposed to strive for holiness like it's not given to me? The answer is yes. It is both. All right. So holiness is being held out as something that we're supposed to strive for every day. And when we strive for this, we will see the Lord. So the the exhortation here to be pure or to be holy or to strive for holiness is something that is already declared of you, yes, but also something you're supposed to do, something you're supposed to strive for. Let's look at it again in another place from 1 John. We just finished 1 John. I encourage you to, you know, if you have a lot of time, download that but you can go to this particular time but you can see this in first john 3 we saw this in first john 3 very similar language to this beatitude notice this this is what first john 2b and 3 say we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is there's another promise we're going to see him and then notice i mean this is amazing how similar the language is to matthew we shall be like him that means 100 percent perfect because we shall see him as he is everyone who thus hopes in him trusts in him put their faith in him because of his work on the cross purifies himself as he is pure notice the language there he purifies himself well which one is it are you already pure or do you purify yourself are you already holy or do you strive for holiness yes 
It's both. We're not off the hook to jump in the back of the limo and just, just set our lives on cruise control and say, God, I'm just going to, you know, enjoy the next 40 years. There is a clear command in the process. I've talked about justification, the moment that you're declared righteous. There's a clear command, the entire process of what's called sanctification, the moment you put your faith in Jesus to the moment you inhale air into your lungs. Lastly, those, that time, whether it's 20 years, 50 years, or 20 months, you are to pursue holiness. You are to pursue purity. You are to strive after with every ounce of your being to be like Jesus. Now let's not misunderstand this. And, and notice the connection in verse 2. I just want to point this out. You will see him if you are pure. That's the connection in 2 and 3 there in First John 3. It would be a tragedy if we misunderstand what I'm saying. So what I am not saying, that purity of heart is outward conformity to rule keeping. Don't misunderstand that purity of heart is outward conformity to rules. It is not. Purity of heart is a work of God wrought by the Holy Spirit, but we strive and He purifies. We work, we as uh, uh, 2 Peter 1, 5 says, we make every effort. Let me, I wasn't even planning to go to first, 2 Peter, but I just want to read this to you because this is so good. Um, 1 Peter 1, 5 says, for this reason, make every effort. So yes, you make every effort, but don't forget 2 Peter 1, 3, which is his divine power has granted all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. You've already received everything you need for life and godliness. Well, does that mean I have to make every effort? Yes, you still have to make every effort. They're both true. So we make every effort and he is the one that has already given us everything for life and godliness. So you strive, you make every effort, he purifies. He does the work of the Spirit, wrought by the Holy Spirit, and he is the only one that can do this. And all along the way, the sanctifying work that is happening in your life is not because of you, and it's not because you're law-keeping, it's because the Holy Spirit is doing it, and as he's doing it, Jesus gets all the glory for it then, because you're not just simply rule-keeping. It's so key, because if it's you Conforming your life to rules, and that's it. You know what? We've all got reason to boast. We've all got reason to get the glory. And this is for Jesus to get all the glory and not for us. So, seeing God. They shall see God. This is Revelation 22.4. I think it's Revelation 22.4. This is a Revelation 22.4 coming to fruition, which basically just says they shall see his face. That's a promise. In Revelation 22, 4, we're going to worship him and we're going to see his face. Now, I want to ask you this question. Calvin says this seeing can be taken as enjoying. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God and enjoy God. So, do you find yourself daily thinking about seeing and enjoying God fully one day in the fullest sense of what it will be in heaven? Do you find yourself contemplating and thinking on that more so than the day-to-day -day grind 
And listen, it's easy, and I, I am guilty of this, of getting lost in the day-to-day grind because there's so many things going on. The pure in heart, the promise is that we're going to see him, literally place our eyes on the man that saved us from eternal wrath. Have you thought about the fact that you're going to get to look face to face? We have no idea what he looks like. There's descriptions in Isaiah, but we don't know. Have you thought on the fact that you're going to physically lay your eyes on the lover of your soul? That's amazing. I mean, that's amazing. We get to see him. And you are told that you will see him and enjoy him then. And so I'm just asking, are these things that we think about now? Are we even thinking about it at all? The more, if you don't, listen to this, there's a correlation here. The more you pursue purity in heart, the more you will desire to see him face to face. The more you pursue him in purity, the more you will desire to see him. And when you see him, if you're pursuing purity of heart, the day will be glorious. I long for the day when I can look into my Savior's face with wide-eyed wonder and awe and lay my eyes upon the man which died for me to save me not just from pain in this life, but eternally. Eternal condemnation. Sinclair Ferguson says this, when we hold this world and its contents too near... We no longer see Christ and His glory so clearly. When we hold to this world so tightly and cling to the things here, we no longer are looking to the things of Christ and seeing glory clearly. Now, here's something for us to really think about. How will you close out this life? How will you pattern the rest of your days until you see Him? What will the pattern of your life look like until you see Him? These short years you have before, as if you're a Christian, you will see him face to face. I want to close with a quote from John Piper. And this is something for us to contemplate about the fact that we are living a temporal life. And one day we will spend eternity with him face to face. And that reality of face to face living to Jesus should absolutely affect this life right now. This is what he says. It is possible to waste your life. Few things make me tremble more than the possibility of taking this one time of gift of life and wasting it. Every morning when I walked into the kitchen as, when I walked into the kitchen as a boy, I saw hanging on the wall a plaque that now hangs in my own living room and it says, only one life to live, twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And now, I'm almost 58 and the river of life is spilling over the falls of my days with tremendous speed. More and more I smell eternity. That's, that's a picture. Oh, how I want to use my life well. It is too short and so fragile and so final. Life is so final. 
You get one chance to live your life and then the judgment. I speak as a father. He's speaking to 20-year-olds here and 30-year-olds in this particular time. I speak as a father who has children your age and I am jealous with Jesus that they and you not waste your life. Oh, one of the greatest tragedies of American culture is the way billions of dollars are invested to persuade people my age to waste the rest of their lives. It goes by the name of retirement and the entire message is you've worked for it, now enjoyment. And what is the it? The it is this, 20 years of play and leisure while the world sinks under the weight of millions of healthy older people fishing and cruising and puttering and playing golf and bridge and bingo and shuffleboard and collecting shells. All of this, listen to this, all of these things in preparation, the last 20 years of your life, all of these things in preparation for meeting Jesus face to face. With nail scars in his hands, you want to look at Jesus face to face having played golf and bridge and bingo. And that is exactly the way you will waste your life in 50 years if you do not make right now some radical decisions and set your face like flint to walk another way. Oh, that you might come to the age of 65 with fire in your bones and say now, now with my simple pension and my remaining energy and my new freedom, I will pour out my life for Christ and his kingdom so that when I meet him face to face, which we all will do, which I will do any day now, I will smile at his words, well done, good and faithful servant, instead of hearing these awful words. Fool, how did all that pointless play put my glory on display? The pure in heart will see God. Christian, you will see God. See him. And Christian, don't miss this. You are pure in heart. You will see him and you are pure in heart. And you only get one life. So let's live according to those truths. And let's live striving for holiness. And let's live extending mercy to everyone around us. Extending the gospel to everyone around us. As I told the gospel to my seven and five year old. And they understood that they were sinners and they needed Jesus. And they said they wanted to be Christians. And they're still learning that. The the next spot that they went to almost immediately is, well, then there's people that don't know him. We got to tell them right now. We got to tell them, Dad, we got to tell them right now. A seven-year-old and a five-year-old went immediately to that. Let's live according to these truths. Let's pray. God, this is the best sermon that's ever been preached, and I'm certainly not talking about myself. I'm talking about Matthew chapter 5 through 7. 
there's so much richness in this text. And Lord, we all can see areas in our life where we are not conforming to you, but conforming to the patterns of this world. And there's no reason to stay in conviction and run from Jesus. There's no reason. Because the gospel has declared us righteous. And so we can come boldly before the throne of grace and ask for forgiveness because of the work of Christ. That is exactly what you want. For us to be bold with you because we have Jesus and to be bold in this world in our evangelism and our telling others about Jesus. And so for all of us this morning, wherever we are, as we enter into worship, we know that our right response is confession, repentance, and worship. Confession, repentance, and worship. And for those that don't know Jesus, it's the same thing. Confession of sin, repentance, putting their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin, and worship. And so, Lord, wherever anybody is this morning, I pray, God, that you would, Holy Spirit, move in their life and let them, Father, respond accordingly. Would you now be with us as we go into worship and give us comfort where we need comfort? Holy Spirit, do your work as we worship. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.